Thank you for that prayer this morning, John. Well, this morning we're going to continue in our study of the little book of Titus, and we are now in chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7 will be the passage of Scripture, the text that we will look at this morning. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible, um, there should be Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to take that Bible as a gift from us. We would love for you to have it. If you're watching by live stream this morning, I think you'll easily be able to follow along with the verses on the screen. Well, back on Memorial Day weekend, we looked at that grand statement on salvation in the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, the passage that I have encouraged all of us to try to memorize by the end of this summer, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then on June 11th, we looked for our communion time, just at verse 15, where Paul says to Titus, declare these things. Declare the greatness of our salvation. And it was at that time that I challenged all of us with the thought that nothing, nothing, in life is more important than our salvation. And I encouraged all of us to look at our own hearts, our own lives, and to make sure that we have had a genuine conversion experience, a time in our life where we have repented of our sin and received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Titus declare these things. Declare that there is nothing more important than our salvation. Well, it is directly from that that we come to chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7. And so Paul, writing to Titus and to the churches in the islands of Crete, says, remind them. Remind the truly converted. Remind those who are genuinely born again, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, 
hated by others and hating one another. But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Well, our first point this morning is remind and remember. The Apostle Paul tells Titus to remind the church's people that they are to be like Christ in all earthly relationships. In all of our earthly relationships, none excluded. We are, try, we are to try and be, or we are to seek and be, to be as Christ-like as we possibly can. And I want to make a statement this morning that is really the big idea for this message. And I'll repeat it a couple of times as I go through this message this morning. But I really want you to think through this with me. And that is, our salvation always leads to good works. If you're not doing good works, you're not saved. Okay, our salvation always leads to good works. And our good works always remind us of our salvation because without our salvation we can't do any good works those good works are not from us in essence but from our salvation in Christ through the resurrected and living Christ living in us so our salvation will lead to good works and our good works will always remind us of our salvation so Paul says to Titus Titus, for all those believers, those genuinely converted among you, remind them. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This is a familiar thought in the New Testament. For example, we see this in Romans chapter 13. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2, where we are told to be submissive to kings, to governors, to all of those who are in authority over us. And it means what it says, that in every way that we possibly can, every Christian is to seek to be the best citizen of their country that they can possibly be. You should want to be one of the best citizens of the United States and its government that you can possibly be. I love what John MacArthur had in his commentary on Titus. He said, there are no exceptions and no exclusions as it pertains to governments. This isn't just for democracies. This isn't just for republics. This isn't just for the times when you like whoever's in leadership. But this is for every Christian, in every nation, whatever their government may be. The only exception to that is when the government would ask you to disobey something clearly taught in Scripture. So we know from Acts 4 
that we must obey God rather than men. But unless the government is asking you to directly disobey Scripture in every other area, you are to be obedient and submissive in every way that you possibly can. And I want you to hold on to the fact that that is a very important part of your witness for Christ. So remind them. And remember, these Christians are one under, don't ever forget this, one of the most oppressive and cruel governments on earth that the earth has ever seen in the Roman government. A completely pagan government. And they are called to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And they are to be obedient. They are to be obedient to Christ. They are to be obedient to the commands and teachings of Scripture. Let all of us seek to be as obedient as we can, to be ready for every good work. And every good work means every good work. You know, as I read through some of these descriptions, you know, and I refer to multiple commentaries as I prepare my sermons each week, sometimes it's just good to take it at what it says. I mean, I can try to define the intricacies of it, but be ready for every good work. Every possible good work that you can be involved in, be involved in that good work. Verse 2, to speak evil of no one. I'm not sure I need to say anything more. Speak evil of no one. I like what one writer said. He said, when you think of those government officials that you don't like, that you vehemently disagree with, it is okay to be critical or in disagreement with their policies and laws, but do not criticize them as people. Now, I know that's probably stepping on some toes this morning. But disagree with policies, disagree with laws, but don't speak evil of people. It's part of your witness. Avoid quarreling. There's a place for legitimate, rational discussion and debate. But don't be a person who's known to quarrel about everything, every little thing. Be gentle. In everything you do, be gentle. And then it says, and I think the English Standard Version has an excellent translation here, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. You know what we like to tell our young children, our sons and daughters, say please, say thank you, Always be nice to people. Well, I say that to you. Always say please. Always say thank you. Always be gracious. Always be kind. Always be good to people. Paul says show perfect, perfect courtesy toward all people. You see, your exemplary Christ-like life is a prerequisite for all evangelism. If you're not living for Christ, if you're not living like Christ, why should they want to come to your Savior? Okay, if you're not living for Christ and you're not living like Christ and they don't see you as being different because of your relationship with Christ, why would they want the Savior that you're sharing with them? 
important, important theme in the New Testament. We think of 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here's one of my little pet peeves. I most often hear this verse quoted, and it's just the middle section. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you, to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We need to be good at Christian apologetics. We need to be ready to defend our faith, and that is true. That is true, but if you're going to quote 1 Peter 3.15, quote the whole thing. In your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, as holy. Live in holiness because you are serving a holy God. And then at the end, yet do it. As you witness, as you evangelize, as you share your faith, do it, folks, do it with gentleness and respect. If you want a parallel passage for Titus 3, verses 1 and 2, it would be 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Listen to what, again, Paul says here. And the Lord's servant, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent's With gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's the whole thought. Do it in such a way that they will want to come to the Savior, that they will open their hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit, or that God will open their hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Don't be quarrelsome. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting your opponents with gentleness. So remind them. Remind them to be like Christ in everything that they do. And then he says, remember. Remember who you were before you came to know Christ as your Savior. Verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Let me ask you this morning, do you remember what it was like before you came to Christ? Do you remember where you came from and who you were before you came to Christ? When you are talking with, sharing your faith with that person who opposes you, who's living a very sinful life. Remember, they are where you used to be. Remember, they are where you used to be. Have compassion. That person talking to you used to be you before you came to Christ. You know, it's been interesting over the years, and I know this isn't true of everybody, but I'll say to someone, 
And I, I think of this a lot. Where would I be today? Where would I be today if I had never come to know Christ as Savior? Have you ever thought about that? Where would you be right now in your life if you had never come to Christ? I can't tell you how many people have told me I'd probably be dead. I'd have probably self-destructed. Don't forget who you are. I mean, who you were. That gives you compassion for those to with whom you share your faith. You were once foolish, Paul says. Foolish, you had no knowledge of God. You were disobedient. You didn't care about the word of God or the teachings of Christ. You were led astray. You were led to all kinds of aberrant teachings and philosophies. Slaves. I think all of us can identify with this. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, literally did whatever our flesh wanted us to do. Then it says, passing our days in malice and envy. Malice means the intention and desire to do evil. That's what malice is. It's both a theological and legal term. It means the intention and desire to do evil. You were passing your days. You were living every day. Desiring to do evil in your heart. Living every day in envy. Envy is a sinful desire to want what you don't have. You look at someone else and they have what you don't have and you want that. And maybe you even hate them. Because they have what you don't have. You resent them because they have what you don't have. And so he says, hated by others and hating one another. Boy, as we look around even our own culture, it is amazing. It's both on the liberal side and the conservative side. If they're not believers, if they're not believers, they just hate each other. They just hate each other. It's all over the place. That's who you used to be. Don't be that way anymore. And what Paul is saying, don't ever forget who you used to be before you came to Christ. You see, if we remember who we used to be and we're grateful for our salvation, then we'll want to live out verses 1 and 2. We're so grateful to belong to Christ that we want to live for Christ. And that leads us directly to our second point, the greatness, the greatness of our salvation. Titus 2, 11 through 14, and Titus 3, 4 through 7, form two of the New Testament's great declarations of our salvation in Christ. If you want an easy way to remember the little book of Titus, that in only three chapters we have two of the greatest declarations of our salvation found in the entire New Testament. So just kind of tuck that away in your brain. That's who, that's how you can remember what the book of Titus is about. It has in chapter 2, in chapter 3, these two great declarations of our salvation. So let's look at verses 4 through 7. In verse 4, Paul says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Now, if that doesn't jog your mind, 
I'm hoping that it will. Because if we go back to chapter 2, verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. It is a direct reference to the coming into the world of Jesus Christ to live a perfectly obedient life before God and then to give his life as a substitutionary sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice for our sins and then to be raised victoriously from the grave, completely accomplishing our salvation. Oh, the goodness and loving kindness of God that he would bring us salvation in Christ, save us when we couldn't save ourselves. But here's who you used to be. Here's who you used to be, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, living all your days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Jesus came into the world, our Savior. And we say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, Jesus came. And he came for one purpose, and that is to save us from our sins. And so in verse 5, it says, he saved us. I love that. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared when Jesus came into the world, He provided salvation for us. He saved us. He saved those who placed their faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord. And then it says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. This little phrase is one of the great phrases in all of the Bible on the fact that you cannot save yourself. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. There is no good work. There is no good intention. There is no set of things that you could possibly do to save yourself. There is nothing. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Apart from Christ, you have no righteousness. You couldn't possibly save yourself. And yet, apart from biblical Christianity, every other religion in the entire world is a works-based righteousness. But the Bible says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. But, it says, Here's how he saved us, according to his mercy. He saved us according to his mercy. You know, we think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's a reason that those two verses are two of the favorites of almost all Christians. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. He saved us by his mercy. So we're going to see, we see in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're going to see in verse 7, he saved us by his grace. What's the difference between grace and mercy? He saved us by his mercy and he saved us by his grace. Well, really, the two words are actually very similar to one another. They're just slightly different. And I jotted down some notes just to help you know the difference between grace and mercy. Grace really refers to our standing before God, our position before God. We have been declared righteous in Christ. We have been given the righteousness of Christ. That's grace. Mercy refers to the fact that God had pity on us. He looked at us in our self-absorbed, self-reliant, self-destructive state. And he had pity on us. He had pity on us because there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. So I jotted down some notes. Grace refers to our guilt before God. By grace, our guilt has been removed in Christ. Mercy relates to our affliction, our helplessness in our sinful state. Grace relates to the state of the sinner before God the judge. Mercy relates to the state of the sinner in his sin. Grace judicially forgives the sinner of his sin. Mercy has compassion on that sinful person and enables him through Christ to come to God, to become a child of God, an heir with Christ. Now, I just shared that with you. If you never remember exactly the difference between grace and mercy, you know what? It's okay. Just remember You were saved by his grace and you were saved by his mercy. You were saved by God's grace and you were saved by God's mercy. So he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, according to the compassion that he had for us in our sinful state. Then it says, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What is regeneration? And it's interesting. The word regeneration used specifically for an individual is only found in this one place in the entire New Testament. So regeneration as it refers to your individual salvation is only found here in Titus chapter 3. He saved us by the washing of regeneration. The late... Dutch-born theologian Louis Burkhoff, I think, has one of the best definitions of regeneration. He says that regeneration is the implantation of God, of the Holy Spirit in your life, implanting the Holy Spirit in your life, thereby applying the complete work of Christ for salvation to you. 
and by the Holy Spirit being implanted in you, you become holy. Okay? So, this is John chapter 14. We went over this in the Gospel of John. When the Helper comes, the Spirit of Truth comes. So salvation is when the Holy Spirit indwells you, applying the finished work of Christ on the cross to you, and thereby declaring you to be holy. That is regeneration. And it's in a symbolic sense called washing because you were washed you were made brand new it's second corinthians 5 17 therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creation the old has passed away the new has come okay anyone be in christ he's a new creation the old has passed away the new has come that that is regeneration but we were saved by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit the holy spirit does both things regeneration is the implanting of the holy spirit in our lives applying the uh, finished work of christ in salvation to us and renewal is the ongoing work of the holy spirit to make you more and more like Christ, to take your practice and have it match your position. So, I stand before you completely righteous in Christ. I stand before you holy before God because of Christ. But I don't always live that way. So it is the renewal of the Holy Spirit that takes as I surrender, yield, submit every minute of every day, it helps my practice to match my position. So regeneration is a one-time event in your life. Renewal is an ongoing process in your life. It's much like the terms justification and sanctification. You were justified before God made righteous in his sight at one time, but sanctification is an ongoing process making you more and more like Christ. So, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, and I want you to get the tense of the text, the emotion of Paul. He saved us. But not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. He saved us because of his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he, the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. There it is. When you came to Christ, when you repented of your sin and received him as your Lord and Savior, God poured out. He didn't just give you a little bit. He gave you, he poured out the Holy Spirit into your life based on the finished work of Christ in his death and resurrection, in his totally accomplished salvation. He poured out on us richly. Aren't you thankful for that? He poured it out on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, 
who accomplished our salvation and is the only means of salvation. So that, so that being justified by his grace, which we've already looked at, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So that being given a right, being given a right standing before God by his grace, we have become heirs, inheritors of the great hope of eternal life, everlasting life. It is both abundant life here and everlasting life in the life to come. So we become heirs according to the hope, the hope of eternal life. And that reminds us of chapter 2, verse 13. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for our blessed hope. The the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Says it all. What a great salvation we have. Well, I want to close this morning by summarizing the three essential truths taught in this passage. Because they're so important. Number one. Number one truth. As a Christian, your gentle, humble, Christ-like life should stand in stark contrast to the world around you. Your humble, gentle, Christ-like life should stand in stark contrast to your unsaved family members, to your unsaved co-workers, to the unsaved in your community and the world around you. People should see that I am different and that you are different in all, in all of your relationships. Number two, we must never forget the sinful, selfish, self-absorbed life that God saved us from. Where would you be right now if you hadn't been saved, if you had never come to know Christ? As I shared with you a few weeks back, if we truly understand our salvation, if we truly understand it, we'll be on our faces every day just saying thank you for my salvation. Thank you for my salvation. Don't ever forget where you came from. Don't ever forget who you used to be. Number three, God saved you because of his mercy and not because of anything you did. Please let everyone here in this auditorium and watching by live stream be clear. You did nothing to earn your salvation. You did nothing to merit your salvation. It was all of God, beginning to end. Let me close the way I began. Your salvation will always lead to good works. If you're not doing good works, then you're not truly saved. The evidence of your salvation is a constant doing of good works, but your good works will always remind you of your salvation, that you can't do good works if you're not saved. It is only by Christ in me that I am able to do the good works that I do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for saving us. May we never forget how sinful we once were. And may our salvation 
May our salvation cause us to be just like Jesus in all of our relationships. For we pray this in Jesus' name.